Assumptions are a dangerous thing. To say the least, they're a dangerous thing, right? Because when something happens, you automatically assume something about the way it happens, or you assume about the person who did X or said X or did whatever, and the assumptions that we make in situations like that can be very difficult on relationships. They can be very difficult on uh anything. They can destroy trust. They can destroy relationships. And the reality is we all carry around, if you will, these kind of stock assumptions that we use in life, kind of rules of life. And they're rooted very much so in the life that we live and how we live life. These assumptions are based on uh, the way we live the story of God. We assume we have to act in a certain way and do certain things. We carry these assumptions around based upon where we think we are in the story of God which side of the story of God we're on. And that'll make more sense in a a few minutes we kind of talk through it. And specifically, I think our assumptions show up the most when we read Scripture and how we interpret Scripture, how it applies to us and how it applies to everybody else, because oftentimes how it applies to us and how it applies to everybody else hits differently just because of what we think. It's kind of like when we read the story of Jonah, right? The story of Jonah, which we studied this year, at various times throughout this story, we judge Jonah pretty harshly. Like, we judge him really, really hard. We judge Jonah because he disagrees with God. We judge Jonah because he runs away from God. We judge Jonah because after he gets spit out of the whale or spit out of the fish, he begrudgingly goes to Nineveh. And we judge Jonah pretty hard at the end of the book because he goes and sits on a hill and waits for God to rain down fire and gets angry when God doesn't, when God is merciful and gracious. But how many of us have gotten mad at God? We don't even like to use those words, do we? How many of us have gotten disillusioned with God, disgruntled with God, because something did not work out the way that we thought it should work out? Or the way we thought it ought to work out. Now maybe we don't go out and sit under a tree and pout and wait for death or wish for death. But it's in those moments that we disagree with God. We disagree with the way the situation worked out. We disagree with the way things... We disagree with the path that God is on. We disagree with the story that God is telling that He's invited us to be a part of. But whenever we look at Jonah, we always like to think we're on... God's side of the story, right? And Jonah, you ought not to act like that. We love the fact that God is a gracious God. Because God is obviously right. And at the same time, we all probably harbor a group of people, maybe a specific group or a group that we think about, that really don't deserve to be a part of the kingdom. Don't deserve forgiveness. Don't deserve life. It shows up also when we read the prodigal story, the story of the prodigal son. And not so much when we read the story because we really like that story, right? We like the fact that God's standing there waiting for us to come back. But the part that we don't like is the older brother. Who when he hears the party, he's like, I have been here all the time. And not once have you thrown me a party. 
I've been here all the time. I have worked and worked and worked. And this guy runs off with your money. This guy runs off and has been slopping pigs. And he comes home and you want to throw him a party? And it's none of those situations where we look at it and we're like, oh yeah, dude, you shouldn't act like that. That is not how you should behave. And we tend to place ourselves firmly on the side of God and the, the father who runs when his son shows back up on the horizon. And yet some of us probably have those people that have in our lives who have come to faith and we look down our nose at them and we're like, I'm not sure you're legitimate. You see, disagreeing with God is not a new concept. Disagreeing with God is not a new idea, is it? We and these ones in these stories that we talked about are not the first and they're not the last to fall into this trap. But I think it's wise for us to be attuned to the reality of what we think and how that informs our assumptions and how we look at the text and how we look at people in and around our own context. And I think it's important for us to be on guard, right? So that we aren't caught off guard when we find ourselves firmly planted in opposition to God when we never really intended to be. In our text today from Matthew 16, we're going to see Peter get whiplash. He's going to be over here, and then all of a sudden he's going to be over here. And it's going to be interesting to walk and see and listen and process so that we don't fall into the trap that Peter fell into. Or at least maybe we don't fall into it again in the future. Isaac's going to read the first section for us from Matthew chapter 16. If you want to follow along, text is going to be up here. Matthew 16, 13 down through verse 20. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Oop, hold on. Start in verse 13. Sorry. Uh, when Jesus came to the reunion region of Syria, Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asks, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of those prophets. But what about you? He asked, How, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed you are, Simon of Jonah, for this, is, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the king to the keys of the key kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. All right, so this is one of those times in Peter's walk with God that he gets 100% right. 
you can know with certainty that you proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that you passed the litmus test, right? You figured it out. You know what's going on. And you see, there's a lot of things that, is, that are preceding this text. We talked about last week and weeks before that about Jesus preparing his 12 to go out. And so then they've been sent out and they're preaching and teaching. And Jesus is going about telling the good news of the kingdom as well. And the country is abuzz with the talk of Jesus. And so maybe Jesus' question is here, who do people say that I am, is a loaded question. Maybe he wanted to see where they are. Maybe if he was trying to see if they really knew and really got what was going on. And Peter got it right. Peter got it right. Not only did Peter get it right, but Peter got it right via divine inspiration. Jesus says, you're right, Peter. Don't rub that, it's on, okay? This wasn't told to you by human hands. This was told to you by my Father in heaven. And you see, that's quite the elevation for Peter there in stature that that he didn't really expect, I don't think. And you can almost imagine Peter standing around with the other twelve. He's like, ah, yeah, God just whispered it in my ear. What, he doesn't do that for you? But you see, it takes a very quick turn because this is a triumphant passage for for the church. This is where the church starts. This is where it it all begins because Peter makes his confession. Jesus says, oh, on that confession, I'm going to build and we're going to do great things. But all of a sudden, it turns so, oh, so quickly. All right, Isaac, start there in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Go behind me, Satan. Satan, sorry. <clears throat> you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have, you do not have in mind the court, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, "Whoever wants to be my disciple must d- deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me." For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What God will, what God will it be for some to gain the whole world, yet for it their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for, for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father. Glory, glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, someone who, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so the conversation goes from Jesus saying to Peter, you got it right. Not only did you get it right, God was talking directly to you. God told you exactly what you just said, to saying, get behind me, Satan. And you've got to wonder what's going on in Peter's mind here because what did it take for Peter to walk up to Jesus, to walk up to the Messiah and say, come here, Jesus, come. 
No, this can't happen. This is not the way the story goes. And it's another one of those stories where we find ourselves deeply rooted on one side. Where we tend to judge Peter with a significant amount of harshness because, well, we know how the story goes, right? We know how it all works out. But you see, this is God's story. It's not Peter's story. This is God's story. It's not your story. It's not my story. And oftentimes, we want to put ourselves on the side of Jesus talking to Peter, but when the reality is we often find ourselves sitting with Peter feeling ashamed, not opposed to him. And so what was Peter's motivation? If we take just the first part, obviously God had prompted his statement of faith, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, and that moment maybe he was caught up in the one, this, this feeling of, of, of being told by God what was going on, and this moment of triumph for the church... But then we look at the second part and we're like, okay, how did you go from God having your ear to Satan having your ear? How did you switch from being locked into what God was doing and how God was leading to all of a sudden being on the other side of the conversation? And I think it's a valuable consideration. It's a valuable thing to think about because we're not any better, nor are we any worse than Peter. Because in one breath we can say all the right things and be doing all the right things and then in the next moment we fall into a ditch because we have left the path. And so, as you go about this week and as you ponder this text, I hope, walking forward this week, a couple of questions I want you just to consider. Who are you listening to? Who has your ear? Not only who are you listening to, but what are they telling you? Can you tell from the things they're telling you whose interest they have at heart? Are they telling you the truth? And here's an even tougher set of questions for us to struggle with. Would you know if somebody who, was, who has your ear was not telling you truth? somebody you've listened to for your whole life, somebody you think is strong in the faith, if you all of a sudden heard them saying things, would you know if the things they were saying were not true? Would you be able to acknowledge the lack of truth in their words? Would you be willing to walk away from somebody who is trying to lead you in a direction or a path you shouldn't go in? I think... The reality is when we find ourselves opposed to God, the root of that lies in the fact that somebody, we've allowed something in that shouldn't be in. Maybe that's the best way to put it. We've allowed something to inhabit our hearts, inhabit our brains that should not be in there. Something is skewing our vision. The lens we're using is faulty. And the task becomes for us, the task becomes recognition and action, corrective action. Peter got a really hard dose of reality from Jesus here. Jesus knew his thoughts were wrong, and Jesus told him his thoughts were wrong. Not only that, he said, get out of my way. And so Peter had a choice. He could have held on to his belief that this is not the way the story goes, which would have ultimately led him to reject Jesus as the Messiah. Or he could embrace this 
new upside-down kingdom that Jesus is bringing to reality and the reality that Jesus would have to die on a cross for this new kingdom. This isn't the last time that Peter's going to mess up, is it? Flip over a couple of pages, Peter's going to step in it again. Going to deny Jesus three times, right? Not once. Once is a, oh, twice is a, three times is a, you know what you're doing. You get over to the book of Acts, you're going to see Paul and Peter come at odds with each other because of the way Peter's treating people who aren't Jews who are trying to come to Jesus. And he has a choice in those moments. And there's a beautiful scene at the end of the Gospels where Peter has left and gone back to fishing because he thinks it's all over. And Jesus comes and what does he do? Come on, Peter. Not once, not twice, but three times he says, come on, go feed my sheep. Each time he gets off track, he has a choice. Do I keep going in the wrong direction? We talked about last week about pausing and stopping when we're heading in a bad direction and seeing where we are, make sure we don't keep going that way. Peter had a choice. He could either keep going in a bad direction or he could pause and correct his course. And you see, that's the key, not only for him, but that's the key for us. Correction when necessary. Now, I made a mistake this week. I know that might shock you. I am not perfect. I made a mistake in real estate this week. Pretty significant mistake in a contract that I was working. And it's going to cost my business financially. And I had a couple of choices when I made that mistake. I could have hid from it. I could have ignored it. I could have blamed somebody else. But within minutes of it becoming clear what I had done, I would called my broker, I would called my client... And that, maybe that was enough, but what I had to do was I had to see, okay, how can I make sure I don't do this again? I corrected the course, not, because, not for the past, because the past is done, right? I, nothing I can do about that. I'm going to make it right, but I can't change it. So I put things in place so when I go forward, I don't make the same mistake again. The key when we find we're in a bad spot, not where we think we ought to be, is not to keep going that way. We don't stop. We don't reject. We don't walk away. In Elder's book, Resilient, which I've been reading, talk about the past couple weeks, the devil is going to hit us when we are at our lowest. He's going to keep driving and driving and driving. And it will look like the easiest and the most sensible thing for us to do is to quit. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to give up and walk away. And again, at one point, Peter did. Peter thought, well, I guess it's over. And he went back to fishing until Jesus comes and calls him back. Keeps calling him back. For the past couple weeks, we talked about being empty and refilling ourselves. And all. one of the things that I didn't talk about was the importance of community in that. The importance of this family right here when we're in those places where we feel like we're empty, where we feel like we're about to give up, when we're questioning everything, one of the worst things we can do, the worst case scenario when we get into a bad spot is to silo ourselves. Is to put ourselves by ourselves, away from everybody else, and not 
keep in contact with those people who love us and care about us and want what's best for us. And so as you think about these questions, I'm going to go back a couple of slides, Mike. As you think about these questions here, and you think about things that you're hearing, and think about things that, that, that are coming into your conscious, your subconscious, whatever it is, if you're hearing something that's troubling you, don't keep that here. Keep that here. Keep that in community. Find somebody that you love and you trust in the faith and be like, look, I don't know. <laughs> I need help. Don't be afraid to say, I need help. Because it's going to be easy not to say that. It's going to be easy to build that wall and live inside of that and after bad decisions, keep making bad decisions and bad decisions and bad decisions. And you see, this is that moment maybe where to start that at. As we think about going to the table this morning. When we gather and when we talk. And when we greet each other. If you've got a concern, hey, don't leave here with a concern this morning. I'm not guaranteeing anybody can here solve that for anybody in here can solve that for you, but I can guarantee that we're all going to love you. And I can guarantee that we're going to do our best to walk with you. And if you're someone that somebody wants to talk to, listen, love, pray with. What an amazing God that we serve. That every week we get this reminder that we live in community. And we live in community because of Jesus and his sacrifice. We call to be around a table, not just sitting in our spots, taking our communion. We're called to be around the table where we can be reminded that we're not alone. That we're all going to make mistakes. That we're all going to step in the wrong direction. And some of us have gone further down that path than others have. But that doesn't mean that your story's over. That doesn't mean that my story's over. It just means that we need to be reminded of the community that we live in and how much we love each other and how much we want to help each other be and go in the right direction. And so let this serve as your reminder this week that God is calling you back. If you've stumbled, if you've gone down a bad path, God is calling you back. Take advantage of this community that we have created, that we are creating because of God and because of Jesus. Listen to him. Listen for him. Take advantage. Be strengthened. Because here's what I know. God loves everybody. And we're doing our best to love everybody too. I'm not offering an invitation because that's not what we do. But I'm going to tell you if, you, if you want to talk to somebody, that's what we're here for. I'm going to, I'll be down here sitting, taking communion, talking with people. And if you just want to talk, let's talk. Let's have a conversation that's meaningful. Let's get below the surface. Let's be the community God has called us to be. Will you pray with me? God, for today, I am thankful. I am thankful for Jesus. I am thankful for his life. I am thankful that our story does not end when we make bad decisions. 
I'm thankful that we serve you, a God of, of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances, that you love us and you're full of grace and you're full of mercy and you want relationship with us. May we as a community gather around the table today and love each other in real ways, support each other in real ways, help each other in real ways. May we be your people in this place. Thank you for Jesus and it's in his name. Amen. Hey, come, let's go to the table.